All right, check one, two, test one, two. City Light, what's going on? How you guys doing? We good? All right. Hey, guys, it is good to be with you all today. Love you guys. Love your pastor. We go way back. I uh, love his wife and love the little squad they're building at home. And uh, looking, forward to what God is, looking forward to what God is doing in you and through you. Um, just to kick it off, uh, one of the things that husbands do is that we annoy our wives. Like, that's part of the job description. That's what I do. Sometimes uh, I do that, and I know I'm wrong in that. Uh, but one of the things that I used to do early on in marriage is this. Uh, one thing that would annoy my wife to no end is that when I was walking beside my wife anywhere, I always made sure that I was in step with her, right? This drew her nuts. Like, I'm walking through the mall with her, man. I'm trying to make sure I'm in step with her. And then she's trying to uh, stutter step so that she's not in step with me. And she's like, why, are you, why do you keep doing that? You see, um, I um, used to be a marching band in high school. Uh, this ain't the kind of marching band. All right, listen, before you clap, this ain't the kind of marching band that you might be thinking about. Right? This is kind of like the marching band from, like, Drumline. I don't know if you've ever seen, the, you ever seen that movie. Right? Uh, man, it, it was uh, incredibly fun, but it ingrained in me this intense desire to be in step with people I'm walking beside, right? So if you're walking beside me, you'll experience this. It drove my wife crazy, and she constantly asked me, why are you constantly trying to keep in step with me? Keep that in mind. Today, my topic is this. It's the gay rights movement, the new civil rights movement. That's my topic. You would think if you were a guest at somebody else's church, they would give you the easy topic. But he gave me all, he gave me, uh, all the uh, landmines. I love it. And I'm going to be honest with you from the jump, man. This clock is ticking on me. I got about 30 minutes. I'm not going to be able to answer uh, this question in, in a very full and clear way in terms that the time allows. But I'm more so today, I'm going to answer the assumption underneath that question. The assumption underneath that question. And the assumption goes something like this. It's something like this. If history has proven that many people are wrong in their opposition to the rights of African Americans, then history will prove that many people are wrong in their opposition, uh, opposition to the rights of the LBGTQ plus community. And when I say rights here, uh, I want to be clear. We're not talking about individual rights. I hope we all believe that no matter who you are, no matter your sexual preference, no matter your sexual orientation, that everyone, including our LGBTQ neighbors, have the right to live a life free of harassment, of bullying and violence. But today I'm talking more specifically about the right to marry, because that's where a lot of the discussion about gay rights is centered. And so the assumption is something like this, just as history has proved that those who have opposed interracial marriage, that they were bigots and wrong, history will prove that those who are against gay marriage now are the same. To hold your view here is to be on the wrong side of history, is to be out of step with history. And like me walking beside my wife, we can feel this pull to get in step with the current moment, and I get that. None of us want to be found looking outdated or out of step or the culture being angry at us. However, in this moment, I want you to hear me today. As people who have been captured by the great love of our great God and King Jesus Christ, our call is not to walk in step with history. 
Our call is to walk in step with Jesus. Our call is not to walk in step with history. Our call is to walk in step um, with Jesus. And listen to me. 10,000 years from now, when we see Jesus Christ face to face, history will vindicate us. So I think it's the church. It's easy for us. So I'll put it this way. Where I want to go today is this. What does it look like to walk in step with Jesus in this moment that we're in as it relates to gay rights? What does it mean to walk in step with the Jesus? Because here's the thing. I think as a church, it's easy for us just to give you the good answers, um, some, 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 some good rebuttals, and you write this stuff down, and now you have ammo to use against somebody else. And, and like Nate said earlier, our goal here is not just to, uh, it's not just to make us, it's just not to be right. Our goal here is to walk in step with the master, with Jesus Christ, and to walk in love. And so today, the question we have is, how should we walk in this moment? And in my answers, I'm going to draw comparisons between the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement. And so here we go. I've got 25 minutes. Here's the first thing I want to give you. and This is short because I hope that this is intuitive for us as Christians. We must walk in step with our God who loves. We must walk in step with our God who loves. This is, this is something that's very easy to understand and to know cognitively. But in our heart of hearts, because we are naturally selfish and sinful, this is very hard for us to do. And one of the ways that the civil rights movement is, uh, let me pause here, it's very easy for me to stand on stage and as a, as a believer to simply tell you ways in which the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement are not the same. But I'm gonna tell you today a couple of ways in which they are similar. Here's one way. The civil rights movement and the gay rights movement is similar because they are both filled with people who are loved immeasurably by God. And as followers of Jesus Christ, we must be people who communicate that love. The reason why many people who are same-sex attracted, many people who are in the LGBTQ plus community, feel alienated by organized religion, it's because we have not communicated the type of love that God loves us with. And so in both of these movements, whether it was the civil rights movement in the 1960s and earlier, and the gay rights movement today, Christians walking alongside these movements should be asking themselves, what does love require? To go a long way. It can't get much better than 1 Corinthians 13. It says this. I'm going to start from verse 1. It says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have that love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but yet have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver my body to be burned and I have not love, I gain nothing. <laughs> Listen to this. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in the wrongdoing, but rejoice in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. Whoever's running the slide, if you could go back to verse 4 and 5 on the slide real quick. Because here, this is what we see. Love requiring. Love requires telling the truth. It says love rejoices in the truth, but then it also involves patience and kindness and a refusal to be rude. 
And so one of the ways, listen to me, that we alienate the LGBT plus GTQ plus community and our neighbors is when we communicate orthodox words without expressing God's love. How do we do that? That leads me to my next point. Not only must we, must we be a people who walk in step with, God, with our God who loves, listen to me, we must also walk in step with our God who made all in his image. Hear me. The gay rights movement is filled with people made in the image of God. And this is slightly different than the fact that God loves everyone. That is true. This is the fact that God has made all human beings, including those who advocated for civil rights of African Americans and others, and those who advocate for gay rights. He made us all to be like him. He made us all in his image. It says this in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. I'll just read, matter of fact, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Like I said, the gay rights movement is filled with people made in the image of God, his imprint, his nature, and one of the things that we can affirm in the, L, in the LGBTQ plus community is the desire for justice, that, that the desire for justice and rights is a good thing. Nate actually hit on this in his talk. But then also we can affirm that that this desire comes from somewhere, that this impulse for rights, this impulse for justice comes from the fact that we've all been created in the image of a God who cares about rights and justice. We're created in his image. We have been imprinted with the very image of God, and yet we live in a world in which things have gone wrong. Sin has entered our world, every single one of us, in the depths of our souls, have the suspicion that things like evil and war and violence is not the way that the world is supposed to be. Sin has come into the world. And one of the things that sin has done, stay with me, is that it has distorted the image of God. Kind of like a funhouse mirror. I don't, know if you're, I don't know if you've ever seen a funhouse mirror. Quite humorous. If you've ever seen one, you look at it, and parts of yourself are off when you look at it. Parts of you are smaller than what they're supposed to be. Parts of you expand to places where they shouldn't be. They're too large. And one of the ways that sin has distorted the image of God in all of us is our concepts of rights and justice. Every single one of us stand as distorted images of God. Sin has affected us. And every single one of us, I'm not just talking about those who advocate for gay rights, Every single one of us needs to ask ourselves this question. Where are the places where sin has distorted God's good design in my life? And I want to pause here before we get to the diversion of the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement. Because here's the thing. There may not be a more convincing apologetic than when Christians stand up and not merely say that we're right, but when we say that we're wrong. Many of us think that apologetics is all about us getting the right answers and expressing those things. But listen, you are not attracted to people when you just merely stand up and say that you're right all the time. 
We need to be a people, like the Bible says, that take the plank out of our own eyes. And we show that we are willing to submit to God's perfect standard and state publicly when our lives are out of step with that. And why is this helpful? Because it demonstrates that we are not trying to conform the, 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 the LGBTQ plus community into our image. It demonstrates that everyone, including the gay community and the heterosexual community, whatever community, everyone needs to be conformed to the image of Christ, and we all have work to do to get there. And so let me be more specific to the topic at hand today. Some of the questions that we should ask ourselves today that we're going to apply to the gay rights community, to the gay rights movement is, how have thoughts about justice and rights be, been twisted to align with an ideology outside of God's will and design? And we need to all think about this, including advocates of same-sex marriage. So let me spend a little bit of time here. Nate actually touched on this a bit, so I won't spend as much time as I planned. But one of the things we need to realize is that we are people creating the image of God. Rights and justice come from a Judeo-Christian framework. Without the God of the Bible, Nate said it before, we have no rights and justice. I don't want to go in crazy depth here, but listen, a world without God does not give us human rights as we know them. A world without God has no foundation to protect the poor and the vulnerable. A world without God is a world in which dog eat dog and only the strong survive. Here's a quote for you. Tom Holland, historian, author, he puts it actually this way in terms of a world without God and rights. This is what this world is like. He says, the strong do whatever they have the power to do. The weak must suck it up. That's not the kind of rights that we conceive in this world. We actually get the very concept of rights and justice from a God whose image that we are created in. So that actually leads me to my third point. Here it is. We must walk in step with God's beautiful design for marriage. See, right here, this is where the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement diverge. And I'll explain why. I just talked about rights and justice. And if we get our rights and the concept of justice from God, we should ask ourselves, how do these concepts relate to marriage? Let me give you a verse, Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, throughout Scripture, we see that marriage, as Nate said before, between a man and a woman is God's design and this complementarity in marriage, men and women, is important because it actually points to something. Ephesians 5 says that it points to the relationship between Christ and the church. And so this picture of marriage between a man and a woman, listen to this, has pre-existed government, has pre-existed the state. And the state did not invent marriage. The state merely recognized marriage. This is important. Because it reveals this, that the state does not define marriage. And in order to extend the right to marry to same-sex couples, this would involve the state no longer just recognizing marriage, but redefining it. And the state has said even previously that this union of commitment between a man and a woman, we're going to promote and prioritize this relationship 
and the government saw fit to give that relationship privileges. We're talking about marriage here, and this is important because where the civil rights movement and the gay rights movement diverge in regards to marriage is here. Listen, marriage can biblically occur between men and women interracially. We were dead wrong in the past to bar marriage between men and women of different races. The Bible declares that wrong. But marriage can't biblically occur between people of the same gender. That's integral to what we call marriage. Here's the thing. I want to be incredibly sensitive here because this feels incredibly unfair. And let me pause here because for our gay neighbors... The feeling is this, heterosexuals have the permission to act upon their romantic desires, but same-sex attracted people have to deny those same desires. We must be sensitive here, and that actually leads me to my last point, and I want to spend a bit of time on this one. We must walk in step with God who knows the path to our joy better than we do. And this is the word for all of us. Because listen to me today, we can easily trust our desires to be arbiters of truth and guides to joy rather than God. And we must remember the truth of Psalm 1611. It's that in his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Our God is able to give joy no matter where life finds you. And related to the topic of hand, in regards to the gay rights movement and the civil rights movement, for many people, the idea is this. That like there are people who are born with an unchosen, with an unchosen racial heritage, I didn't choose to be black. Some people are born gay. And therefore, they should have the same rights as anyone else to marry. Here's the thing. One of the reasons why we should view the gay rights movement and the civil rights movement as not being one and the same as it relates to marriage, is this. Yes, it's true, listen, that we don't choose our race. And like it's true that we don't choose our race, yes, it is true, listen to me, yes, it is true that we don't choose our attractions. However, listen, homosexual behavior is not merely about attraction, it's about action. We may not choose our attractions. I have yet to meet a same-sex attracted person who who said they chose that. However, we may not choose our attractions, but we do choose what we do with our attractions. For instance, let's take a man within marriage who is attracted to other women. Right? He works hard to not follow those attractions. He could choose to cheat on his wife or divorce her. But that would be wrong. Actions and desires, we intuitive, intuitively know this. Actions and desires do not force action. I'm sorry, attraction and desires do not force action. In the same way, likewise, a same-sex attracted person... Um, when they, uh, likewise, this is the case when a same-sex attracted person chooses to act upon the impulses that they have. The attraction that a same-sex attracted person has to someone of the same sex is not morally wrong. However, we must remember that attraction does not entail action. 
Every day, every single one of us, we have to make decisions to ignore our drives rather than simply respond to them. We understand that we are not animals, we are humans. And to put this all together, in the relation of civil rights and, and gay rights, uh, someone's racial heritage is unchosen through and through. And while same-sex attraction is unchosen, the debate is not whether or not someone can be same-sex attracted. The debate is if homosexual lifestyle, including which includes behavior, is synonymous with race in terms of being unchosen. And here we would say, no, attraction may not be chosen, but behavior is. Now, here's a word that I want to give to all of us. This is for all of us, not just to people who are same-sex attracted. Here it is. Some desires are meant to be satisfied, but some desires are meant to be crucified. And that's for all of us. And for our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters, what it means to crucify the flesh, um, uh, Jesus is asking for our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters to crucify their flesh here, just like he's asking us to do the same in other areas. But back to my original point, I do want to be sensitive here because, like I said before, it seems incredibly unfair. Nate actually hit, hit on a bit of this. And I said it before, it feels like we're saying that um, those who are heterosexually, uh, uh, who, those who are heterosexual have the permission to act upon their romantic desires, and same-sex attracted people have to deny those same desires. This is so hard. We must be sensitive here. I want you to look at this verse really quickly that helped me. 1 Corinthians 6, 13. It says this. You say the food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. In that verse, you see actually two things. God declaring that sexual immorality is wrong, and that's a point in which we must crucify the flesh. But in that same verse, God says that he's not against the body. He actually says he's for the body. The Lord is for the body. What a phrase that God is not against you. If you are in this room right now and you are same-sex attracted, I want you to believe something. There are moments in your life that you need to take this by faith, that God is not against you. He's not against your joy. He is for your joy. He is for your joy. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. We have to cling to that statement in faith with the knowledge that God will give us the power to obey him or whatever he's calling us to. And there will be a day when faith is made sight and our bodies will no longer war against us and our desires to the depths of our being will be aligned with what God wants for us. But in the meantime, I'm going to give you guys a bit of practical application. There are some things that the body of Christ must do in order to help our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters trust Jesus for their joy. It's not enough for us simply to deny uh, 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 gay marriage. It's not simply enough to tell our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters all the stuff that I just said and then pat them on the back and say, good luck. No, the scriptures say that we are called to bear with one another. And we're called to love one another. And to the end, I want to give us three quick things that the body of Christ can do to love our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters. I want to give you three quick um, things. And Nate, hit on this. Uh, these are going to be more applicatory in nature. 
This is something that we can do. Here's the first thing. We need to model healthy marriages. We need to model healthy marriages. What do I mean by this? Christians who are not same-sex attracted and who are married, we are hypocrites if we tell same-sex attracted people to not act on their desires because of God's design, and we are people within marriage who are doing things like committing adultery and watching porn. That's hypocritical. God is telling all of us to deny ourselves and to follow Jesus for our joy, and we are called to obey. And so no wonder that same-sex attracted people, when they see sexual scandals within the church, they look at us as hypocritical. Our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters need to see a community that is actively warring against their flesh, and we're public in how we're doing that daily. Same-sex attracted people should not be fighting their flesh alone. Also, and they actually hit on this too, marriages also need to understand that they need to extend beyond the four corners of their houses. In Christ, I love this when you see in the Bible, nuclear families were never meant to be self-contained and self-sufficient. You are not called to get your wife, to get your four kids, and just worry about me and mine. If you have a nuclear family, namely a spouse and kids, you should be constantly asking yourself this question, how am I weaving the broader body of Christ into the life of my family? Because the fact is, our church, especially those who are same-sex attracted, and for many of them, the church is calling them to a a lifetime of singleness. Our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters who are single need family, and you have the opportunity to provide that for them. We need to model healthy marriages. Here's another one. We need to model joyful singleness. Joyful singleness. And this is big. Because listen, too often we treat singleness as a scarlet letter that we can't, get, we can't wait to get away from. For too many of us, we, we, um, we, 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 we treat singleness as something that it is not. Listen to me. Singleness is not a deficiency. Many of us look at each other and in the back of our minds, we are tended to believe that there is something wrong with a single person especially if we're single, a single person past like 30. We tend to believe, oh, something's wrong with you. But listen, if singleness is a deficiency, that's an attack on the lordship of Jesus Christ because Jesus was single. Singleness is also not a waiting room. Singleness is not, uh, it isn't a gift that is necessarily uh, attached to dating and marriage. Singleness Some people think that singleness is the waiting room to dating and marriage. It is not true. But also, singleness is not a test. Purity culture didn't say this outright, but it heavily implied this, that if you do singleness well, then God will reward you with a spouse. Now, listen to me. Singleness is a good gift from God. You have this gift if you are single. It's not some capacity that you are given at birth. If you are single right now, you have the gift. Why do I say all this in relation to same-sex attracting? This is why I say this. Because listen, if you are a single person and you are constantly trashing your singleness and complaining about it and you're discontent about it, 
You're declaring to same-sex attracted people who are called to live a life of singleness because of their same-sex attraction that what God is calling them to is second-rate and deficient. Listen, it's not wrong to desire marriage, but remember, many of our same-sex attracted brothers and sisters desire marriage too. So we must model what it looks like to walk in singleness well. I'll give you an example. One of the members at NBC Arlington, he's a member currently of my discipleship group, he recently told us that he has chosen to remain single in order to minister to his same-sex attracted friends. Man, it blew my mind, and I asked him why, and he said this. He said, part of the reason why I've chosen to remain single is to show two things. Number one, to my gay friends, and I'm in this with you. I'm denying my flesh also, willfully. And also to show that singleness is a place where God can reach us with his joy. And this leads me to my last point. I got three minutes left. One of the ways in which we can minister to those who are same-sex attracted, these very people that we're saying that marriage is not a possibility of, of, uh, between people of the same sex as this. Nate hit on this too. We need to be good friends. We need to bring back friendship in the body of Christ. Because if we say to a same-sex attracted person that they should deny their desires, and if those desires do not change, we are telling them to remain single. And for many people, lifelong singleness, like Nate said before, is synonymous with a lifetime um, of no intimacy. And we need to show... uh, We need to show that marriage, like Nate just said, is not the only setting that fulfills our desire for intimacy. I love this quote because this guy puts it better than I can. Sam Alberry, he's a pastor, single man, same-sex attracted, has written a lot about this topic. He says this. He says, the sad reality is that that there is now an appalling paucity of friendship in many of our churches. For our Western culture, and sadly for much of our church culture as well, friendship is largely dispensable. When it comes to intimacy, our focus is on the romantic and the marital, but it is all a far cry from what the Bible has in mind when it talks about friendship. In the West, we've collapsed sets and intimacy into one another, and we can't conceive of genuine intimacy without it being sexual. So I'll give you an example. Take this verse. 2 Samuel 1.26, it says this, talking about David and Jonathan. It said, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant that you have been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of women. Think about that. Through the eyes of our culture, through our American eyes, it is hard for us to not think that David and Jonathan enjoyed a sexual relationship, but that wasn't the case. This is the kind of deep intimacy that's available in friendship. A friend is someone who always lets you in and never lets you down. Friendship is vulnerability and joy. Friendship takes time. This is intimacy. Proverbs 18.24 um, uh, talks about this. And if we're going to be a community where single people thrive, listen to me, this has to be a place where friendship thrives. 
must learn how to be friends with one another. And for many of you in this D.C. area, I pray that this pandemic has helped you here. But one of the enemies to true friendship, to, to, to true intimacy, is our busyness. Now, for many of us, we are so addicted to busyness that we have no time for lasting intimacy and lasting friendships. And no wonder that many people who are same-sex attracted feel utterly alone. We need to create margin in our lives for people who've been called to a lifetime of singleness, including those who are same-sex attracted, so they can experience the kind of intimacy here that God calls us to have as a church. And so I'm 34 seconds over, and so I'm going to take a moment to pray, and I, and I think we have a panel session after this. And so uh, let me pray. Uh, Father, we love you. We are so grateful that you are for our joy. Psalm 107.9 talks about that, that you fill the longing soul with good things. I know for many people who are same-sex attracted, have longings for intimacy and marriage. And God, we realize, God, here that you are not against our joy, you are for our joy. May we be a people that clearly communicate that in word and deed. May we be a people who walk in step with you the way that you love people. And Father, I pray desperately, desperately, that you will help us that you will make the church to the kind of community that you had in mind, church filled with intimacy and friendship and everyone together mortifying our flesh so that we may, may walk in joy, walk in obedience, walk with you. Uh, we love you. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.